Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Please turn to page uh, 1068. I've shared with you several passages, words of Torah, and I've spoken to you, or some of you, about a very great man who passed away a few years ago, Rabbi Yehuda Amital. And often when I share words of his Torah in particular, I find, others also, but I find that I'm not only sharing words of Torah that he taught, but also teaching lessons about his own character. And, and this is something that, that fulfills that as well. Because there's something about Rabbi Amital, tremendous scholar, tremendous teacher, human being, one of the qualities that he has is a sense of honesty and integrity in everything that he did throughout his life. And this is, this is a, a, a piece that I think reflects that. So the beginning of the Parsha, page 1068, begins with the mitzvah of Bikurim which means bringing the first fruits. So it works like this. When the Jewish people came into the land of Israel and you own land in Israel and you harvest your crops, you take a basket of the first fruits that you harvested and then you travel to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim, and you come to the Kohen in the Beis Amigdash and you present these fruits and you recite a text so let's take a look. Starting at the top of the page. Page 1068. It shall be when you come into the land that Hashem will give you and you take for the first of your fruits and you put it in a basket and you'll go to the place that Hashem chose and you come to the Kohen and the Kohen will take the basket from you and place it in front of the altar and then Pasuk Hay, number 5 in the middle of the page and then you will say the following text. These words may be familiar to you. Arami Oveiravi My father was a wandering Aramean. Bayere Mitraimani went down to Egypt to sojourn there small in numbers, but they became a great nation, mighty and numerous. Where does it come from? Agada. This is the passage that we quote at the Pesach Seder. And we take apart every phrase and we analyze it phrase by phrase. But this is where it comes from. This is what this man says when he appears in Jerusalem with his first fruits. So he says, we started off wandering in Aramea, and went to Egypt, became numerous there, and the Egyptians persecuted us and gave us hard work, and we called out to God, and God heard our cry, and God took us out of Egypt. Now that's the part that we quote in the Haggadah, but there's one more verse. 
And that verse is Pasuk number Tess, number 9. And God brought us to this land and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And now I have brought the first fruits that have come from the land that you, Hashem, have given to me and I bring them to offer thanks and gratitude to Hashem. It's an amazing mitzvah. For a person so clearly and dramatically to recognize the good that Hashem has done for them. Says Rav Amital, in our day, Rav Amital, by the way, survived the Holocaust and made his way as a very young man to Israel. Says Rav Amital, in our day, it's not a good idea to base our Judaism on gratitude. Because if you base your Judaism on gratitude, I serve God because I'm grateful for everything that He does for me. How does Judaism continue after the Holocaust? How is it possible to honestly feel gratitude with what has happened to us in the previous century? Now, obviously, we do need to try to be grateful for the things that Hashem has given us. And also, and certainly as time passes, we are able to appreciate and to be grateful. But we have to remember that gratitude by itself cannot be the reason that we serve God. We serve God because it's the right thing to serve God. And a person who bases their belief and bases their service on gratitude, what happens when they have a reason not to feel grateful? And not just the Holocaust, the Holocaust on a national level, but on the level of each individual. Things happen, God forbid. And how can a person be able to genuinely say that they're grateful? And the fact that we as human beings are able to keep uttering the words even if we're, they're not really connecting to what is honestly going on inside us. I mean, the rabbis in the Talmud say that at different times in history, it was not possible to praise God using certain words because people at that time did not experience God in a positive way in that, in that sense. And the Talmud says when that happened, they stopped saying the words because you can't say praises to God that are not honest. God doesn't want to hear prayers that are false. So as obvious and intuitive as gratitude is, 
we have to make sure it's not the sole basis for our belief and our service. And says Rav Amital, that is what is behind a feature of this text. Because there's something very strange. Okay, I understand. Gratitude is important. If you if you have something nice, you should say thank you. I understand a farmer harvests a crop in Israel. It's an amazing thing. I understand bringing the first fruits to the Kohen. And I understand saying words. I understand that. But let me just suggest an alternative text. Because I'm not so sure that on the surface I understand this text. So let me share this text. Hi God. My name is Michael Wibben, and here's what happened to me. Last year, I planted some seeds. I wasn't sure there was going to be enough rain. I davened. Thank you very much. There was enough rain. My crops grew. Thank God I was healthy enough to be able to harvest it. Thank God I have a family and I have friends that helped me to bring it in. And thank God I have now, I brought this in, and I was able to travel, I had the wherewithal to come to travel to Yerushalayim, and I want to express my gratitude to you, Hashem, for all that you did to me, did for me, over this whole process, allowing me to reach this point where here I'm able to bring first fruits from the land that you, Hashem, gave me. It's an amazing thing. Now, why isn't that? That's more personal. And instead, what we have is, okay, I'm going to use a word, generic. We were slaves, and we were persecuted, and you heard our cry, you took us out, and you brought us here, but you understand, every single person is saying exactly the same words. Okay, I understand that, but <laughs> instead of every single person writing the exact same words in a thank you note, wouldn't it be more meaningful for every person to come and say, thank you for this, thank you for that, thank you for what happened to me, you say thank you for what happened to you, you say thank you for what happened to you, wouldn't that be more meaningful? Says Ravamital. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a good question. Says Ravamital. That's a problem. Because if it's based on personal gratitude, Maybe not everyone will be able to fulfill the mitzvah. What happens if I plant the crops and I davened Hashem for rain and the rain did not come? And I was expecting to get 100 bushels and I ended up with 40 bushels. I expected to be able to support my family for the coming year and now I'm not able to support my family for the coming year. How am I going to be able to, to express gratitude? And that's why says Rav Amital, we speak as an individual who is part of a nation. We express gratitude for what God has done for the nation as a whole. Because there, yes, I can say, Hashem, you, did, you absolutely did that. We were slaves. We were persecuted. You did take us out. You did give us this land. And you did bring me here. All of that is true. Okay, I would have liked a few more bushels. Fine. But I still can express the gratitude, if not of the individual personal story, but the, the, of the nation. And that's why it's phrased as the nation. In order to make sure that the prayers 
are genuine and authentic and have integrity and have honesty. The same thing applies in our own prayers. We say the paragraph in, in, in Shemona Esrei, in the Amidah, we say, Thank you, Hashem. What happens if on a given day a person is not able to say thank you? What happens if Nebuch, God forbid, something terrible happened? How can you say thank you? So, uh, one second, one second. The words of the prayer, yes, it is true that there's always a place for each individual to add their own personal prayers. Please come join us and please have some chalant. Help yourself. What happened to me that day, yes, I've said to you before, when you say modim, think of three things that you're grateful for that day. But remember, the words are in the plural. Modim anachnu lach, I'm thanking you, Hashem, for the miracles that you did for us. Okay, today I didn't merit... Today I didn't merit getting treated that way. Today I had a rough day. Today I was I got a potch. Today today was not good. But but the Jewish people as a whole is is, is certainly receives miracles. Every morning, every evening, every morning, every afternoon, every minute, there are miracles that are occurring. Okay, today I didn't merit having that happen, but I can still express gratitude. Yes, if something personal happened to me, I should add, and yes, I want to thank you for, thank God, the, the great thing that happened to me. But at least we can say the prayers because the gratitude is not the basis of our service. It's got to be added, but it can't be the only basis. Is this why there's so many hundreds of Haggadahs? Why there's so many hundreds of Haggadahs? Yeah, well, you know... That's going to come for the next piece. Okay. Yes, Ilana. Yeah, I just, I want to say, like, it's, things bad happen to anyone and to, to people and to the nation, and, uh, um, but things can be even, we can still, we can thank God because it can be worse than that, yeah. what's happening. Always can could, be. Uh, it, it could always be worse. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes, yes, it, yeah, 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 as a nation, as a nation, yeah, Rabbi, yes, Abe. I continually thank God for the troubles that I don't have. Hey, that's good. Yeah, it could be worse. Good. It could be worse. Okay. I wish I was as big a tzaddik as either of you. I'm not. Yes. I'm sure you're a big tzaddik. I'm sure that I'm not. Abe. I'm positive. Yes. I just want to say I had an elderly aunt and she always said, Duncan God for the far. For the far. However it is, Duncan God. Okay, okay. I say that, but I kind of feel if that's okay. Sounds good. All right, let's go forward. Okay. Number two. I want to share something with you from Rabbi Riskin. So, a person brings these Bikurim, first fruits, and they say the text. We know from the Haggadah where we quote it because it just so happens it's a very concise ver- uh, uh, um, description of the Jewish history in the Exodus, so it works out well to use it for the Haggadah. Of course, there are other reasons that we quote that, that verse, but we know from the Haggadah, we know from Pesach, that the story has to provide a contrast. Starts with the negative 
and contrast the negative in the past to the glorious present and the future. So there is that evolution, historical evolution that's part of the Pesach story. Started out bad, but now it's good. That's the story that we tell on Pesach. How does it start? Famous words, first words, Arami Ovet Avi. Here's an interesting question. What does it mean? The words Arami Ovet Avi. So, it is very, very difficult to come up with a precise translation of those words. Let me give you a couple of opinions. Here's the opinion of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, Arami, which means, seems to mean, someone who comes from Aram. Now, Aram is a place. In, in, we translate it as Aramea. By the way, just be careful, it's not Armenia. That's a whole different place with a whole different meaning and a whole that's a different that's a whole different is Aramea. So Aram. So who is the Arami? Who came from Aram? Well, yeah, Aram, yeah, Avraham, we know, but in the Haggadah or in this Pasik, according to Ibn Ezra, it refers to Yaakov. Yaakov, Jacob, Yaakov. Arami Yaakov was Oved Avi what does that mean? according to Ibn Ezra Oved means wandering or fleeing wandering or fleeing where was Yaakov wandering or fleeing? Yaakov was fleeing from his brother Esau. Right? Yaakov received the blessings from their father Yitzchak instead of his brother Esau, who was the firstborn. And Esau said, I'm going to kill you. Right. Not like when our kids say, I'm going to kill you. But he actually, or maybe like some of our kids, he actually meant he was going to kill him. And Yaakov had to run away. And Yaakov was away for over 20 years. So, so it refers to Yaakov. Yaakov was Arami Oved Avi. Avi, my father, was Arami. He was originally from Aram. And Avi, Oved, he was running away, fleeing. Yaakov was rootless. Yaakov was on the run. But then, finally, he goes down to Egypt few in number with his family and his family becomes a mighty nation and they're persecuted but then Hashem hears their cry Hashem takes them out of Egypt so the story starts with Yaakov having to run away from his brother who, who wants to kill him and it ends up with the Jewish people exodus from Egypt taken out of Egypt by God okay, that's one version that's Ibn Ezra Ya Rashi has a completely different translation and with that is a completely different interpretation. Rashi says as follows. Arami, who is the Ar Aramean that we're referring to? It's not Yaakov. It's Lava. 
Lava. Lavan. Rebecca's brother. Yaakov's father-in-law. Twice. Because Yaakov married two daughters of Lavan. Arami and Aramean Lavan Oved Avi. Oved with this translation means tried to destroy Avi, my father. In other words, the threat that Yaakov had was not, the, the greatest, most serious threat was not from Esav, it was from Lavan. Lavan wanted to destroy Yaakov. Now, that interpretation is actually the interpretation that is accepted by the Haggadah. The Haggadah says as follows. Say Elamad, go forth and learn. What did Lavan the Aramean want to do to Yaakov, our forefather? It was so terrible that Paro only wanted to kill the boys. But Lavan wanted Bikesh Lakar Esakol. Lavan tried to completely eradicate every single soul from Yaakov's descendants. So the Haggadah, that's the, that's the author of the Haggadah from the time of the Mishnah. So the Haggadah is assuming that the meaning of the words is in accordance with the way later Rashi would explain them. That the Arami is Lavan and Lavan tried to destroy Yaakov. Okay. So here's the problem. Just one little problem. Where in the Torah does Lavan try to destroy Yaakov? On the contrary. When they first meet, the Torah says, When Lavan hears from his daughter Rachel, because she's the one by the well, and Yaakov sees her, leaves out the part where he falls in love with her immediately. Okay, but and 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 Lavan hears that Yaakov is there. And it's a relative, because remember they're they're related through their mother. He ran to greet him, he hugged him, he kissed him, he brought him into his house, and he said to him, You're my flesh, you're my body, you're my family, we're family. Come in. Where's where's BK Schlocker as I call? I mean it sounds pretty nice. So let me share with you what Rabbi Riskin says. Now, I'm going to say something that may upset some people. I once said this and someone actually walked out in anger. So, I'm going to try to explain it a little better this time. (laughs) 
Which one is worse? Persecution or assimilation? Now, let, let me just explain. I understand persecution is not good. It's not fun. Nobody wants persecution. Nobody wants torture, holocaust. Uh, it's not good. It's, it's, it's not good. I'm not comparing... I'm not comparing the two in terms of, God forbid, what we would want. But what I'm asking is, which historical phenomenon has a greater impact on the future of the Jewish people? Which, which historical phenomenon poses a greater risk for the Jewish people being able to continue to the next generation? Assimilation. 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 Because the fact is, we say this and I got also, not only then did they try to destroy us, in every generation they try to destroy us, but Hashem saves us. But Hashem is not exactly saving us from assimilation. Hashem saves us, okay, the Holocaust was unspeakable, unbearable, okay, but, but, but the Jewish people did survive. Assimilation, we don't survive. Once, once we're assimilated and intermarried and there's no connection, that's it. It's, that's it. It's, it's gone. It's, 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 it's permanent. And what was the danger that Esau posed to Yaakov? Physical persecution. I'm going to kill you. That's it. Okay. That's really bad. That's really bad. And if he succeeds, we're in big, big trouble. But you can run away. You can defend yourself. Yaakov did run away. And ultimately, 20 years later, he made peace with Esau. Okay? Lavan. Lavan wanted to assimilate Yaakov. Lavan wanted to bring him into his home. Into his family. Into his pagan lifestyle. There came a point where Yaakov realized if I stay here any longer I will die my soul will die through being hugged to death. We'll never leave. If it all becomes about the wives and the children and the sheep and how many sheep and how to get more sheep if that's all that life is, there will, there will be no Jewish people, there will be no Jewish history, we just want more sheep. And there is a moment where Yaakov, thank God, is able to realize this is not all that life has to offer. And he comes to his wives and he says, you know what, we've got to go home. We've got to go back to Israel. There is a mission that we have in this life and it's not just sheep. And if we stay here, we're going to be swallowed up by Lavan's hugging and kissing. Nobody walked out. <laughs> Give him a few minutes. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> it's such an important lesson for us in our day. Just to think about, you know, this phrase... And we read the phrase, and, and what does it mean? And there are different interpretations... Now, of course, we would like not to have to choose between one or the other. There, there ought to be an alternative. Says Rabbi Riskin, the challenge for Jews today, 
is to remain strongly committed even when no one is lighting a fire under us. But it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. At the very least, we need to remind ourselves and, and, and reading the parsha this week is an opportunity to remind ourselves of how much of a threat Lavan is through his hugging and kissing and closeness. Okay, third piece. So then the Parsha goes on to describe quite a dramatic scene. If you turn, please, to page 1072. Again, remember, this is Moshe speaking to the Jewish people at the end of the 40 years in the desert, in the last days of Moshe's life, just as the Jewish people are about to get ready to enter the land of Israel. And Moshe now describes for them a ceremony that they are to enact as soon as they come into the land of Israel. And it's an incredible ceremony. Starts at the top of the page. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Moshe says, telling them what Hashem wants, passing bays at the top, on the day that you pass over the Jordan, it is not the first week, month, year, on the day you pass over, you're going to take these great big stones and you're going to set them up as monuments and you're going to write all of the words of the Torah so that there's this public monument of the words of the Torah that we are expected to follow when we're in Israel. And then, and then, you are to go to a place called Mount Grizim, a mountain in the center part of Israel, just a little bit north of Jericho, near Shechem, Mount Grizim, and there's another mountain right next to it called Mount Avel. Two mountains with a valley in between. And there is this public ceremony. Six of the twelve tribes will stand on one mountain. The other six tribes will stand on the other mountain. And the Kohanim and the Levium will be in the middle. And they will turn to each side and have the entire Jewish people take a series of oaths and curses and blessings. And they'll say, turn to one side, Blessed will be those who fulfill the words of the Torah. And they turn to the other side and they say, and, and everyone says, Amen. We take this oath. And then they turn to the other side, Cursed will be those who do not uphold this Torah. And everybody answers, Amen. And it's this amazing, dramatic ceremony of the entire Jewish people, this public undertaking of committing and swearing and and being obligated as soon as they enter the land of Israel to all the laws of the Torah. 
Now, there is a, an idea that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Maybe you've heard such a thing. The idea that there are 613 biblical commandments, of course there are many other rabbinic commandments, but 613 is the number of the biblical commandments written in the Torah. There is no authoritative source that tells us what are the 613. For example, there are a lot of commandments that are repeated more than once. Remember I told you, don't mistreat the stranger is repeated, what was it, 36 times. So is that 36? Is it one? How do you count it? What is a mitzvah? Kedoshim to you. We spoke about that. Be holy. Is that a mitzvah? Is that an approach to life? Is it an attitude? Is it a value? Is it counted as one of the 613? So in fact, what happens is everybody agrees there are 613, but different scholars have different lists. The most famous list is the list of the Rambam, Maimonides, who wrote a list called Sefer HaMitzvos, which is his list of 613. And true to the style of the Rambam, first he wrote a series of rules. Here's how you decide. It's got to be something that applies for all time. Can't be a one-time thing. Various rules. Even like, for example, you know, like, let, 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 let's say, like the laws of Shabbos. Is it one? Is it 39? Because there are 39 categories of prohibited activity. Is it two? Is it, uh, uh, so, so the Rambam has a methodology and a list of 613 mitzvahs. Of course, the Ramban disagrees in many cases. The Ramban wrote a commentary to the Rambam's work on some of the commandments he said that does not belong in the list and then there were others that he said should belong in the list. Famous example is the Ramban, the Rambam, Maimonides, does not count living in Israel as one of the 613 mitzvahs. Says the Ramban, you're wrong. It should be in the list. Of course, what, whatever you add, you've got to take something else out because you, you have to stick to 613. Okay, so there is a whole body of learning. It's a fascinating subject of what are the 613. One of the sources, I told you the Ramba, Rambam, say for a mitzvot, the book of commandments, Ramban, where he argues with the Rambam. Another source is... Rav Sadia Gon wrote a work where he listed the 613. And Rav Gon lists as one of the 613 commandments this ceremony. To have this ceremony, it's one of the 613. None of the other scholars who have lists of 613 include this. And, and the reason not to makes a lot of sense. The reason not to is, this was a one-time thing. It was a one-time historical, historical episode. 
It would be as if you said, when God said to the Jewish people, travel from here to there, that should be one of the 613. It's not one of the 613 mitzvahs. That was something that God said to those people at that time. It's not relevant any other time. God said, on this day, you do this. It's not relevant any other time. So it makes sense. The, the, the opinion that does not include it makes a lot of sense. The question is, how in the world could Rav Sadi Yagon come up with it and include it? So here's what Rav Yerucham Perlau, who wrote a commentary to Rav Sadi Yagon, so he gives the following answer. It's a very important answer. Our rabbis tell us in the Talmud that there is something else happening as a result of this ceremony. Because when the Levium in the middle, they turn to one side and they turn to the other side, blessed is he who observes the commandments and cursed is he who does not. There's something else that is happening and that is the Levium are bringing into effect the concept of Arvus. Which means connectedness or responsibility. That's the source of the phrase Kal Yisrael Aravim Zelazeh. Each Jew is a guarantor one for the other. Now, let's just pay attention to that phrase for a moment. So, it's a very famous phrase. I'm sure everyone has heard it. I'm sure everybody has donated money to the Federation because of it, which is a very good reason. It's a great line. It expresses something very, very deep. Call Yisrael a raven zelazel. Each Jew is responsible for every other Jew. What does the word arev mean? Call Yisrael arevim. What is an arev? So, there are two interpretations. One is a legal interpretation. An arev, and this is a word that's used throughout the Talmud, is a guarantor, a co-signer. You want to take out a loan? You don't have credit? The bank says you have to have a co-signer, you have to have a guarantor. And a guarantor means if for some reason you don't come up with the money, the guarantor, the arev, the is going to have to come up with it. The Talmud says, just from a business point of view, it's not so smart to be a guarantor because you don't get any upside, right? A guarantor doesn't get any benefit. He only has downside. He only has risk. It's risk without reward, so it doesn't make financial sense. Okay, but it's a chesed. It's an act of kindness. Yes. Somebody needs help, and you can be a co-signer. Okay, it's a mitzvah. Call Yisrael a revim Each one is an arev, a co-signer, a guarantor. So that means, if you're in trouble, I'm going to help you. That's one meaning. Is it with an ayin or an olive? Ayin. Let me show you 
a halachic technical consequence of this concept that came into effect with this ceremony. So I, 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 let me just explain. So what Rav Sadia Gon says is yes, it's true that the ceremony itself is not the mitzvah, that was a one-time thing, but the halacha that came into effect that call Yisrael Arevim Zelazah, that is a mitzvah, and that exists for all time, and it comes from this ceremony. So when Rosati Gon says that it's one of the 613, it means the concept of arvas, the concept of being a guarantor, one for the other, is one of the 613 mitzvahs, which makes a lot of sense. That's a great interpretation. Let me share with you this example, this halakhic technical concept, formal conce- consequence of this halakh. In halakhic terminology, it's called, it's known as yatsa motzi. Means like this. Let's say Shabbos is starting. It's Friday night, so everybody at the table has a mitzvah to make kiddush. Saying Kiddush at the beginning of Shabbos is a mitzvah. So there is a halacha that says like this. I'm obligated in this mitzvah. You're obligated in this mitzvah. I can say it out loud and you can answer Amen and I can have in mind that I'm doing it for you and you can have in mind that you're fulfilling your obligation by listening to me. And that works because of the concept of arvus. Call Yisrael a raven. We're all connected. We're all guarantors. We're all responsible. So if I'm doing it, and it's as if you're doing it, but it goes one step further. Let's say Friday night, Shabbos is starting, and for whatever reason, however it works out, I make Kiddush. And I drank wine, and I had mozi, I had challah. I did it. And then I go to a place, for whatever reason, however it works, and there's a Jewish person there, and they did not yet hear Kiddush. They didn't do it, for whatever reason. But I already did it. The halacha says that even in that case, I... Of course, if you want to make Kiddush yourself, be my guest. you can make Kiddush. But let's say you want me to make Kiddush. I am allowed to make Kiddush, say the words, drink the wine, you answer Amen, and that counts that you fulfilled the mitzvah. How does that work? But I already did it once. I mean, if I already fulfilled my obligation, how can I repeat it for you? You did not fulfill your obligation. We don't share the same level of obligation. The answer is arvus. Call Yisrael a revim Which means, and this is now a paraphrase from Ravaren Lichtenstein, I have an obligation to make Kiddush on Friday night. As long as there is a Jew anywhere in the world that has not yet made Kiddush, I have not yet fulfilled my mitzvah. I'm not finished until every single Jew in the world. And that's why if I come across a Jew that has not yet made Kiddush, I did not yet fulfill my mitzvah. And I can repeat that Kiddush and I can repeat it over and over again as long as there are Jews who have not yet heard it that night. 
That is a technical consequence of call Yisrael Arevim Zelazel. Every Jew is responsible to make sure that every other Jew is able to fulfill all the mitzvahs. And until every other Jew fulfills every other mitzvah, I have not completed the fulfillment of any one of those mitzvahs. Says the Noam Elimelech, another way to understand the word Arvus or Arev, call Yisrael Arevim Zelazel, is like the meaning of the Pasuk in Shir Hashirim. Ki kolech orev. Orev means sweet. Beautiful. Kal Yisrael arevim zelazeh. All of Israel sweetens one another. Each Jew helps to make other Jews sweeter and more beautiful. Let me give you a an application of that that hopefully will be meaningful to you. You know that the holidays, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot in Israel is one day Yom Tov, outside of Israel two days. But Rosh Hashanah is two days both in Israel and outside of Israel. First day of Rosh Hashanah, we say all the prayers. Hashem is judging us. We blow the shofar. We say in Asana Tokef. Okay, Hashem judges us. W- what do we mean when we come the second day and say the same prayers again? I mean, we just said it yesterday. Didn't Hashem judge us yesterday? If Hashem, ju- Hashem judges us, it happens at a certain time. What is it that we're praying for on the second day? So, It's a very good question. There are a lot of different answers, but here's one answer. There are two separate judgments. On the first day, we come before Hashem and we are judged as individuals. What did I do? What did I deserve? Hashem looks at me as an individual. Scary. I think it's, for me, it's scary. That means I have to stand on my own record? It's terrifying. On the second day, every one of us is judged as a part of our klal, our community, our congregation. Now, that kind of a judgment is a little bit easier because when we appear as a group, okay, I had a shortcoming. But you made up for that shortcoming. Maybe you had another shortcoming and she made up for that shortcoming. Between all of us, we're looking pretty good. Maybe individually, some of us might be a little weak, but but as a group, we're pretty good. That's the nature of the judgment on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. So, it's the same words, but the context and the significance of the words is different because Hashem is looking at not me as an individual, but me as part of a group. Well, what do I have to do then? I have to figure out how to sweeten the group. I have to figure out... 
I have to figure out <laughs> how, how do I make the group better? And if I can sweeten the group, and listen, you can sweeten a group in a lot of different ways. You could just smile. Just make people around you happier. Make people around you a little bit more pleasant. That helps call Yisrael Aravim Zelazel. We make each other sweeter and more beautiful and more deserving of Hashem's protection on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, I want to do one last thing. One last piece. <laughs> At the end, no, no, I'm good. Thank you. Good. I appreciate it. When I finish this, you're going to ask me if I'm talking about politics. So let me say, yes, I'm talking about politics. But I'm also talking about other things. If you look, please, at page 1076. So what happens in this section of the Parsha, there's a section, it's very difficult to handle, very difficult to hear. The first part's nice. A section of blessings and then curses. So Hashem says, there's a contract. If you follow my mitzvahs and do what I say, here are all the great, beautiful things that are going to happen to you. But if you don't, here's the list of what's going to happen to you. And I'm sorry to tell you, the second list is longer than the first list. Okay. Now on the first list, page 1076 near the top of the page, how about near the middle of the page, Pasuk Yud Gimel 13. Hashem v'lolazanav. Hashem will make you the head and not the tail. Who wants to be the tail? <laughs> yeah. No one wants to be the tail. We want to be the head. Hashem will make you the head and not the tail. That's good. That's a blessing. To be the head and not the tail is good. Of course, if things don't work out that way, if you switch now to page 1080, In the middle of the page, Pasuk number Memdal at 44. Others will lend to you, but you will not lend to them, meaning you're going to be impoverished and indebted. Your enemies will be the head, and you're going to be the tail. So, if you follow Hashem's commandments, you're going to be blessed, you'll be the head, and not the tail. But if you don't, you're going to be cursed, you're going to be the tail, and not the head. Simple question, the Rabban asked this question. There's a head and there's a tail. If you're not the head, you're the tail. If you're not the tail, you're the head. Why does it have to say both? Say, you're going to be the head. If you know that you're the head, that means you're not the tail. Say, Nebuch, you're going to be the tail. If you know that you're the tail, you know that you're not the head. Why do you have to mention both? Says the Ramban, well, you could, be, you could be both. You could be a head and a tail. Meaning, you could be ahead of somebody else, but behind the next person. You could be in between.
I want to give you another insight. How you can be both the head and the tail. And this is based on a famous comment, I've shared it with some of you before, by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and it's based on a passage in the Talmud at the end of the Tractate of Sota. At the end of the Tractate of Sota, the Talmud asks the question, what will the world look like when Mashiach comes? Now, the only problem is that the Talmud gives so many different answers, some of them seem to indicate things are going so well that Mashiach comes, and then other answers seem to be things are going so badly that Mashiach has got to come and save us. And we don't know which one it is. Maybe it's both, maybe it's in between, or maybe it's something else. So we don't know which one it is. But in the course of that discussion, what is the world going to look like just before Mashiach comes? The, t- the Talmud says a startling line. In a series of startling lines, one of them is Pnei Hadar Kepnei HaKelev. The face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. The face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. What does that mean? Maybe it's a cute dog. <laughs> Maybe it's a cute dog. Says Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the Pnei Hadar, the face of the generation, refers to the leaders of the generation. The leaders of the generation, please don't make any mistake and think that I'm saying something that's not nice language because chas v'shalom, that's not what I mean and I'm going to explain what I mean in a minute. The face the leaders of a generation are like the appearance of a dog. What does that mean? We're not making fun of somebody. Uh, we don't, we're not making fun of anybody with not nice words. Listen to what the Ramba, what Ruby Salanta says. And this is what I mean when I say this is about politics, but it's not only about secular politics, it's about Jewish politics also. You see a person with a dog And you might say to yourself, who is leading whom? And then you might say to yourself, well, I'll tell you who is leading whom. The one who is in front is the leader. The dog is in front. So the dog is the leader. However, when the dog comes to a crossroad, the dog looks back. I, I mean, I'm talking about an obedient dog. <laughs> the dog looks back to the human. Which way are we going? Should I cross? Should I go? This way, left, right? So when you see that, you realize... It's not the one who's in front who's the leader. It's the one who's in back who's really giving the instructions. The one who is in front who appears to be a leader is really only taking direction by turning around and seeing what is said in back. Says Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. When you have leaders who do not lead based on what is right or wrong, 
based on principle or based on law or based on values. But instead, their method of leading is to turn around and to see, well, what do you want me to do? What's popular? What's going to find favor in the eyes of the majority? If that is the style of leadership, that's what it means to say Pnei HaDorka Pnei HaKelev. It's that kind of leadership. And you're in big trouble when that happens. Yes. Now, it is certainly true that you need to know what your followers think. And it is certainly true that there are cases and are situations, and especially in a democracy, where you do need to know what the majority of people think. But it is also true that there will always come times in any type of leadership where a person reaches a, a moral crisis and has to be willing to say this is right and I will stand for it even if the majority will not back you got to be careful because you could be making a mistake. But you have to recognize you have to lead from the front. You can't always only lead based on what those behind you say. And when that does happen, then the generation is in big trouble. And that's what it means. Heavy Laroche, Velolazanov, you need to be the head and not the tail. You need to be a leader that is leading from the head and not the kind of leader that's turning around to look at what the tail is saying. That's the meaning of the blessing. And the opposite is the curse. My friends, I, I just want to say one thing. So we're going to take a break. I want to wish everyone Shana Tova, a wonderful Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But I, I just need to say one more thing. These last number of months that we've studied together have been very, very special for me personally. And I want to express deep gratitude to every one of you for coming and appreciating and causing me to be, to, to develop this and, and to sh have the privilege to share it with you. Uh, I, I promise you, it is a greater privilege for me to share it than for you to hear it. The Talmud says, more than the calf wants to suckle, the cow wants to give the nourishment. And it is a, a deep privilege. I'm very grateful to you. And I thank you very much. And I look forward to our studying together in October. Thank so thank you very much. Thank you very much.